Well, good evening, church. It's been really good to be with you these two weeks. Um, obviously, this evening, I'm not finishing 1 Peter, but um, I want to finish at a, at a logical place. We have seen um, that there's a pattern in Scripture, and that is the pattern that there has been these two weeks, because um, last Sunday morning, we looked at the incredible truths that Peter shares with these believers who are having a rough time. He tells them that they are a chosen people, being sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and they have a glorious inheritance that is to come, and God is keeping that inheritance for them. It can never perish, spoil, or fade, and God is holding on to them by faith. He is keeping them for this inheritance and there is grace to come because Christ will come back and there will be full salvation. But in the evening we looked at what follows from that because there is the all-important word in scripture which is therefore and therefore in the light of what we are as God's people individually, in the light of God's promises and the living hope that we have, there is an imperative, there is a way to live and therefore we are to live in holiness. We are to live in reverent fear. We are to live in love for one another. And then this morning, we were looking at the incredible truths that Peter shares with his readers about who they are corporately as God's people. They are a chosen people. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. They are God's own special possession. And there is a therefore that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. But there is more than that. There is a way to live. There's a way to live that is different. Uh, and it is that that I want to look at this evening from uh, chapter 2, verse 11 into chapter 3. It's a lot of scripture. Um, I'll tell you right now that, that normally what I like to do the way I preach is, is exposition, and um, there's just too much scripture here for me to do detailed exposition that I'd like to do. What I don't want to leave you with, church, is, a, is an impression, a, a challenge, uh, um, not so much an encouragement because of God's promises, but a, a challenge to live in a way that is different, um, in a way that brings glory to God in a world that doesn't understand us and misrepresents us. And uh, persecution might be too strong a word. Maybe that will come. But this is how we ought to live. So let me read this to you. Um, reading from chapter 2, verse 11, into chapter 3. Uh, reading from the New International Version. Dear friends, Peter writes, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... To abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those to do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves, 
Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy woman in the past who put their home at God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. And you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Um, this is not the easiest passage to, to bring to you this evening. I don't want to pretend that it's easy because um, it is never straightforward taking instructions that were given in a certain social context, in a certain historical geographical situation, and then thinking that we can blindly, unthinkingly apply them in the 21st century in a very different culture. Uh, we have to be careful, we have to employ our minds and think, and it would certainly be true to say that there is not unanimous agreement among all believers about how we should interpret these passages. I think there's enough agreement for us to agree on the main things. Um, and I was also thinking to myself that if I do put my foot in it, um, if there is disagreement, sure, that's all right, because next week I'm away off back to new NBC and Pastor Jeff's here to pick up the pieces, and that's what he has paid for, so <sighs> let him earn it. Um, we are called to live as aliens and strangers. I want to thank Jeff, too, for at the very start of the service reminding us that, um, because I just thought it was so relevant, that we are living in a, in a situation where our government that is over us is imposing upon us a law that we do not agree with. 
And so the message this evening is very relevant. How do we cope with that? How do we deal with that as believers? Um, how do we live differently? How do we show respect for authority even when it's not what we want it to be? Dear friends, writes Peter, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Dear friends, so he is not here appealing to them with the authority of an apostle, but as one of them. Dear friends, I urge you. You see, holiness, holiness cannot be imposed with authority and force. It is something that is uh, nurtured in love and in gratitude. And so Peter writes to them to strengthen their desire and their will for holiness and for a differentness. He writes to them too as foreigners and exiles, and I mentioned last week that it's not entirely clear whenever Peter uses these terms whether he meant them literally or metaphorically. Did he mean that they were exiles and foreigners because they were not in their own land, they were living in a foreign country? Um, or did he mean that they were living on earth when their true home was in heaven. Um, I think both is true. If you have a version that's not the NIV, it might actually say as foreigners and exiles in this world. Uh, and if it does say in this world, there should be a little footnote somewhere to say that in this world is not actually in the Greek. It has been put there by the translators to help us to understand what the belief Peter meant, but it's not there in the original Greek. But we are exiles and foreigners in this world. We are exiles and foreigners. Our values are different. Our way of life is different. Our hope is different. It's not in this world. It's in another world. We are exiles and foreigners. We do not belong here. And I think as time goes on, we will feel increasingly isolated and increasingly uncomfortable with what is going on around us. These believers felt uncomfortable in so many respects. And yet Peter urges them as foreigners and exiles in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And if you were reading through 1 Peter, you would see that Peter has already previously told these believers to abstain from adopting the sinful values and customs of this world. He's already told them that. So why does he again write to be very careful and to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul? I think it's for this reason. I think it's because you need to hear it again and again and again and again because the tug and the lure of the flesh is so strong. And the desires of the flesh are nurtured and fed by the world in which we live. And we need to be constantly vigilant, always watching out. I mentioned uh, last week that when I talk about the flesh, I do not mean our material body. I mean that part of our nature which is not under the authority of God, which is independent of God, which has no time for God, which is hostile to God, and which Paul tells us can never submit to the will of God. Our flesh is self. It's me. It craves autonomy. It craves independence. 
And so the big challenge that will come from God's Word this evening, which is essentially submission, submission to authorities, submission to God-ordained authorities, that doesn't fit in with the flesh. It's a challenge. It's hard. It seems unnatural. In many ways, everything within us cries out against it. And yet Peter says, I want you to live differently. I want you to be different. I want you to submit. The battle for holiness begins in our hearts and our minds. And Peter says, they war against your soul. We live in a spiritual war zone. When I was sharing this uh, some time ago, a picture came into my mind as I read what I had written, that we live in a spiritual war zone. And, and what I pictured was a scene in a, in a town in Syria because, um, well, we're seeing it again. For a while there, we didn't. But we've all seen images of cities absolutely devastated by war. Piles of rubble, uh, shell holes everywhere. And can you imagine what it's like for residents in those cities because there were people living there who have to walk maybe a mile to find some food or to find some water. And they venture out and they walk along those streets and they hear gunfire and they see smoke and they hear explosions and they're walking along those streets and they're walking through the rubble and they know every second that they're out, that they're in danger and they're vigilant and they're watching. And what Peter is saying is to these believers is, these desires war against your soul and you're out living and sometimes you are so lackadaisical and so casual and so naive because you think you're safe, but you're not safe. Your flesh wars against your soul. The world wants to bring you down. Satan, he says later on in the letter, is a raging lion, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is out there. And the world is thrusting images and ideas at you, telling you you want this. This is what you should do. And they war against your soul. And when we are living in this world as aliens and strangers, we have to be vigilant. We have to watch. We have to look back over our shoulder. And the world flashes things at us and tells us things we need to be saying. Is this good for me? Is this helpful? How do I deal with this? And cry out daily for our God to keep us right. We are called to be different. Uh, that differentness from the world um, is not to be expressed in an aloofness. It's not to be expressed in a, in a withdrawal from the world. Peter says is that the way that that differentness is to be expressed is to live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. So inwardly we avoid worldly desires and outwardly we are to live lives that are honoring and glorifying and honorable and morally pure and blameless. So the world can point the finger and ridicule us and put us down, but they cannot accuse us of wrongdoing. They cannot accuse us of immorality because our lives are pure and right and consistent 
And Peter will tell us that that is how we are to resist and refute the accusations of the world when they say that you're crazy, you're mad, you're living in another time. We don't do it by shouting back. We don't do it by giving back as good as we get. We do it by living lives which are outstanding, that are morally pure and good and clean and right and blameless. Um, As aliens and strangers... People out there who belong in this world are constantly watching us. Constantly watching us. And they're looking for opportunities to find fault. And Peter is saying, don't give them opportunities. Live lives that are so good and pure that they cannot fault you. I'm sure you've heard before that um, as believers, our lives are the only Bible that many people will ever read. They may not pick up the word of God, but they will see its truth lived out in our lives, ideally. And if we say that our message is true, if we say that the message that we proclaim, the gospel, is powerful and true and good and credible, then a credible message must have a credible messenger. What good is it if we believe the message is credible if our lives do not match it, if our lives do not speak out its truth? We're to live differently in the world so that even when people accuse us of doing wrong, they see our honorable behavior and they give honor to God. And then Peter says this. Submit yourselves. Why? For the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. That's hard. We are to submit ourselves to every human authority. That certainly means our government for which in Northern Ireland we may have precious little respect. It means the UK government, which at the present time we cannot agree with. And we may be inclined to think, well, Peter is speaking idealistically. He is telling us that ideally we respect the government and we submit ourselves to every human authority, but he cannot really have meant that we do that in Northern Ireland. He cannot really have meant that we do that in the UK. How can he expect people in other countries where there are terrible governments to submit to them? So let me give you a little bit of background. In the year AD 37, there was a child born to a a noble family in the Republic of Rome. His name was Lucius. His father died when he was just three years of age, and his mother, Agrippina, who was a driven and extremely ambitious woman, married again. This time she married the Emperor Claudius of Rome. She 
convinced Claudius that he should adopt her child as his own, which he did. Lucius was adopted as the child of the emperor Claudius, and his name was changed to a name you will be more familiar with, Nero. In AD 54, the emperor Claudius died. He had been poisoned by Agrippina so that her son, Nero, should become emperor. And if Agrippina believed that she might rule Rome through her son, she was mistaken. Because a few years later, Nero sent a trusted officer to dispatch his own mother with the sword. And Nero was, he was sporting, he was artistic, he was also brutal, he was extravagant, he was bisexual, he was sadistic, he was quite, quite deranged. In AD 64, the great fire of Rome burned for nine days. Some three quarters of the city was destroyed. And rumors began to circulate that Nero himself had started the fire. Why? Because Nero had submitted ambitious plans for the redevelopment of Rome. And the Senate had turned them down as being too exp expensive and extravagant. Perhaps Nero decided that he would force the redevelopment of Rome by destroying the city himself. But when rumors began to circulate, even in high quarters, that Nero himself was responsible, he needed a scapegoat. And he quickly fastened blame for the fire on a class of people in Rome who were despised for their strange practices, Christians. And what followed was the first systematic persecution of believers in the Roman, in the Roman Empire. There'd be many, many more. And I tell you that story because isn't that corrupt government? Isn't that bad government? And that is the government of Rome ruling the world at the time that Peter is writing this letter and telling the believers in Asia Minor to submit to the emperor. The emperor was Nero. Telling them to submit to worldly human authority, which were under the rule of Nero. There is no caveat here that we get out of our responsibility to submit if that authority is wicked. I want you to think of Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate could not understand Jesus' reluctance to defend himself. And Pilate says to Jesus, Do you not know that I, Pilate, have the authority to destroy you or to let you go? And Jesus replied, You would have no authority unless it had been given to you by my father it was God the father who had given Pilate his authority it was divinely ordained it was God given and Pilate was a ruthless procurator of Judea he would put Jesus to death greatest crime in history. But Jesus says, the authority you have to do that, Pilate, is from my Father. 
Jesus submitted to that authority. He did not challenge it. So where does that leave us when we're not happy with the powers that be? It leaves us with responsibility to recognize that all authorities that exist have been established by God. That is what Scripture teaches us. And that we are submitted to submit to every authority and respectful of every lawful human authority for the Lord's sake. And that is not easy, Christian. But that is what we are to do. That is being different. And what happens when that authority expects us to act in a manner which is contrary to the will of God? We are first and foremost under God's authority. And if we find ourselves in a position where we have to choose between man's authority and God's authority, then we choose God's authority. Authority. Peter himself, who wrote those words, would, would tell the Jewish religious leaders later in the book of Acts, look, you're telling us not to preach. Do you think we should obey what God tells us to do or what you tell us to do? We will go out and we will preach. He did what he felt obliged to do under God's authority, but he took the consequences, which was arrest and beatings. We need to be very careful that we show proper respect, that we are not needlessly rebellious. We need to be very careful that we do not compromise our integrity in order to be as little different as possible. Nor should we be gratuitously offensive and go out of our way to be different and awkward and stubborn. Peter says, I want you to live lives that are different. I want pagans to look at you and recognize that though they accuse you of wrong and truth, they cannot fault your moral standards and your moral behavior. Slaves, he says, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, it is standard procedure, and I do it as well, to take those words and apply them to a modern context and simply say, well, that means that we are to submit ourselves to our employers. But let me say something else first, because these words of Peter are often criticized. He's telling slaves to obey their masters, even when they are cruel and harsh. Is Peter endorsing slavery? Is Peter simply saying that, slaves, this is your lot in life. Just like it or lump it, do what you're told. Why does Christianity not challenge the institution of slavery? A couple of things that you need to recognize, and that is that slavery was, <laughs> it was part of the structure of society at the time of Peter. You know, even in Rome, it's, it's been estimated by some people that there may have been as many as 80% of the population who were slaves. And we shouldn't think of slaves as being treated in the same way as they were in Britain and America at the time of abolition. That's not the case. Many of those who were technically slaves were professional people, highly educated, teachers, doctors, engineers, housekeepers, people who had important positions managing households, caring for children, teaching 
the children of, of important people. But what Peter is saying is, those masters that you have are an authority that is ordained by God. All authority is from God, Peter says. And when you are under authority, you submit yourself to that authority. Slaves in reverent fear, submit yourselves to your masters. He's not blind to injustice. He is simply recognizing that at this time, Christians had no voice. They had no political voice. To urge slaves to take a stand against slavery would have been social chaos, anarchy, and a bloodbath. That doesn't excuse the fact that when Christians many, many, many years later did have a voice and did have the opportunity to rid the world of slavery, they didn't for so terribly long. But at that time, what Peter says is, submit yourselves to them. And the way that Christianity challenges social injustices and social evils is not by revolution and rebellion. It's by regeneration and reform. And even at the time of Peter, the first challenges to slavery were being made. By the end of the first century, when Christian householders and Christian people were being executed, many slaves of those Christian people chose to die voluntarily in the arena with their masters. And there was a huge impact on people at the very start of the second century when a, a Roman matron, Felicitas, who was being put to death in the arena for her Christian faith, stood hand in hand with her slave as she was executed. Christians saying, you know, in Christ there is no slave, there is no free, we are one. And that was undermining slavery. Why should I? Why should I put up with a government that does not act according to Christian principles? Why should I put up with an employer who treats me unfairly? Why should I put up with an employer and serve him with integrity and honesty and hard work when he does not show his appreciation? Why? Because I want you for a moment to picture Christ on the cross. And this is what Peter does with his readers. He says, I want you to do this because Christ suffered for you. And he was perfectly pure and righteous and good. And he had done no wrong. But when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When they hurt him, he did not seek to hurt them back. He took it. He did not retaliate. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And we love that verse, Christian, don't we? We love that verse. He bore our sins on the cross. Christ shed his blood for us and Christ has redeemed us. And we celebrate that and we sing about it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I want you to notice something. Just a few verses back. I think it's verse 21. 
Peter says, to this you were called. Christian, to this you were called. Christ is not just your savior, he's your example. That is the model for your life. A life of suffering injustice, a life of picking up your cross and carrying it. Didn't Jesus say that? If you're going to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross and carry it like I did. You're called to non-retaliation and innocent suffering. And you learn to bite your tongue. You know, sometimes in church, we, we can do that. If we come out to church on a Sunday morning or evening and we know what's expected of us and people annoy us, but we hold it back. We want to bite our tongue. We don't say anything because this is church. And when we want to lash out, we don't because this is church. And we know how we ought to behave in church, but we think there's a, somehow a distinction between being out in the streets and being at work and being in church. And there isn't. There isn't. There is no secular employment. We work for Christ. We work as though Christ is our employer. We serve him. We humble ourselves for his sake. To this you and I we're called. Christ did not only suffer for us, he left us an example to follow. And I know that we're uncomfortable with that. I know we're uncomfortable with that. But the way of the cross is the Christian way. You know, you can't get round that. There's a tradition. It's not in Scripture. Um, you may have heard of a book called uh, Quo Vadis Domine. It's also a movie called Quo Vadis Domine. Um, it's, it's based on, on, on this, the name, because it's said that Peter was leader of the church in Rome, and when that Neronian persecution began in AD 64 with the great fire of Rome, that the Christians in Rome urged Peter to get out of Rome. His life was too important. He was an apostle. He'd been with Christ. He needed to get out of Rome before he was arrested. And Peter, listening to those who wanted to save his life, left Rome and he left the city and was walking along the road out of Rome. And tradition says that as he was walking out of Rome, he was stunned to see Christ walking towards him into Rome. And he said to Christ, Quo vadis, Domine? Where are you going, Lord? And Christ replied, If you are deserting my people, then I am going back to Rome to be crucified again. And with that rebuke, Peter turned around and walked back into Rome. And he was crucified. Tradition says he was crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to be crucified like our Lord. It was the way of the cross. That's the Christian way. To take up a cross and follow him. And that means suffering unjustly. And I'm struggling saying that because we're living in a world where we have rights. And we want our rights. And our flesh cries out for our rights. And I'm not saying that we should simply suffer and say nothing when our rights are infringed. But our first priority, church, is never our rights. It is the honor of Christ. And if we're going to stand up and insist upon our rights, we need to think to ourselves, how will this impact my witness? How will this impact the kingdom of God? 
We live differently as subjects, and in chapter 3, we're to live differently as husbands and wives. Um, wives, he says, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. In the same way. Now, what is that in the same way referring to? Is that referring to the words for the Lord's sake? Is it referring to Christ's selfish or selfless action on the cross? Um, Commentators are not agreed. It could be one or everything. In any case, he is saying, wives, for the sake of Christ, in view of his sacrifice, his love, his mercy, I want you to submit yourselves to your own husbands. It was certainly considered appropriate in Greek culture and in the Roman world that wives should be submissive to their husbands. But what Peter is urging is something more than that. When he says in the same way, he's urging his readers to think of doing this for Christ. They're not to use their freedom for selfish purposes. They're to use their freedom to glorify God, to honor God, and to submit to God, God's authority and every other human authority. And there is something in us that says that submission is not right. Submission, church, has nothing to do with inferiority. You remember that Jesus um, took a, a bowl of water and went to his disciples and he took a towel and he kneeled down and he washed their feet, which was the most humble of tasks. It was the task given to the lowliest of slaves in a household to wash feet. And Jesus washed their feet. Was Jesus inferior when he did that? Was he surrendering something precious? Jesus was still Lord. Washing the feet of his disciples was not an indication of his inferiority, but an indication of his freedom and his love and his willingness to serve. And in every respect, as believers, when we are called to submit to an authority, it is not because we are inferior. We do it out of reverence for Christ. It is not a sign of inferiority. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, washed the feet of his disciples, setting them that example, then we should not consider it too little to submit to worldly authority. Remember that Peter, in a few verses, is going to tell husbands that they're to treat their wives with consideration and respect and honor because they're joint heirs with them of the precious promises of God. They're their spiritual equals. We are called to live differently in the world. I'd love to avoid this verse 3 in chapter 3. And if I did, I know you're going to think less of me. It says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Okay. 
where do we go with that in the 21st century? You know, I think there's, there's two very different wrong interpretations of that verse. And one of them is to say, well, Peter's writing in the first century. He's writing to believers in the northern part of Asia Minor. And what he says has no relevance whatsoever in the 21st century. And there are other believers who take it radically different and say that it is totally inappropriate that women should in any way adorn themselves, except in the very plainest of clothes. Uh, I don't believe you know that Peter means either. I think he is drawing attention to a very important distinction between what is really important. And what is really important is what is on the inside gentle and a quiet spirit because God considers that to be something commendable. And I'm going to take this out of simply woman because men can be very fashion conscious as well. Not me personally, as you probably noticed. (laughs) But uh, men can be very fashion conscious as well. And being driven by fashion being driven by fashion to the point where it is almost an obsession and it becomes an expensive and time-consuming, that is not conducive to holiness. Looking after ourselves and wanting to look our best is not harmful. But let's be careful. Because I've often said it to myself and to my wife, <laughs> she doesn't appreciate it, is that if we spent as much time on a Sunday morning, on our knees, preparing ourselves for a spiritual encounter with God as we do washing and shaving and cleaning and dressing and getting ourselves ready, we would be very different people, I think, on a Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Peter is not saying a yay or a nay. He's simply saying, look, what is important here? Submit yourself to God. What God sees is your heart. Man looks in the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we should not be dressing in such a way, male or female, that people notice us. We shouldn't be dressing to be noticed. We should be acting so that Christ is noticed. We should be speaking so that Christ is noticed. It's appropriate that I should stop, but let me just sum up. We are who we are in Christ, so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. How do we declare his praises, church? We declare his praises when we live in holiness. We declare his praises when we live in love. We declare his praises when we submit to his authority. And we declare his praises when we submit to the authorities that he has delegated and ordained. And we submit to his, and declare his praises rather when we do not retaliate when we are judged wrongly. When we do not react to criticism with sharp words and giving ridicule back. We declare his praises when we build our marriages on God's plan and purposes rather than on the world's indifference. We declare his praises when demanding our rights is not our first consideration, 
But what is our first consideration is our Lord's honor and his glory. When we declare his praises when we recognize that the way of the cross is not only the way of our salvation, but it's the way of life to which we are called. Take up your cross, Jesus said, and follow me. Um, and that's hard. And when it's hard, and when you're struggling, you look that direction, and you cling on to that living hope that Peter has shared with you. It says that you have a glorious inheritance that is to come. And this world is hard because you don't belong here. It's not your home. You're aliens and you're strangers and people will not understand you and they will sometimes think evil of you and they will ridicule you and they may even persecute you. Do you know what? To this you were called. To this you were called. And for those of us who have the privilege of suffering in any way for Christ, we will also be glorified with him. We will see him and we will be like him. That is the hope that you cling on to. It's a hope that I have to cling on to. I trust that we can live for God's glory, that we will learn to be submissive to every human authority, to have the wisdom to know when to speak out, and to declare his praises so that the world around us cannot fault us on our behavior, on our attitudes. I want to thank you, Lord, for your word. And we acknowledge again, Lord, that your word at times is not easy. And you call us to a way of life, Lord, that can seem so crazy in view of what the world is telling us. The world tells us that what matters is us, that what matters is our self-preservation. What matters is our rights. What matters is our progress. And you, Lord, you tell us to love others as we love ourselves, to submit to authority, to put others first. You tell us not to retaliate you tell us to accept wrongdoing and entrust ourselves to your justice. Father, I pray that your spirit might work in us to change us and to help us to be the people that you call us to be because, Lord, in our strength, we cannot do it. But we thank you for the hope that you give to us and for our new identity in Christ. Help us, Lord, to live differently for Christ's sake. Amen.